On this episode of the Smith Sense Podcast, I welcome my friend and business partner, Gary Young, to join me in a conversation about the Overton Window. You may have heard of the Overton Window already, but odds are you haven't heard it discussed in the way that Gary and I do here today. If you value independent thinking like we do, and believe that independent thinking leads to great solutions for humanity, you'll get a lot out of this podcast. So enjoy. Thank you. All right, Gary, we want to talk about the Overton window today. So tell me, what is the most important thing, or what do you think that people really need to know about the Overton window? The Overton window is this idea that you can control the type of discourse and the type of ideas you have, right, or other people have, by constraining the set of possibilities of things that you can say or things that you can think even, right? The idea came originally from politics, but it's much more powerful than just a political idea. But the idea is basically like, look, there's certain things on a spectrum that you could talk about, and there's certain things that you can't, right? And I think a lot of people unnecessarily self-censor because they have this personal Overton window, right? And I think it was Joe Overton, who's the guy who came up with it, right? He came up with it right at sort of the beginning of the internet entering into widespread deployment, if you will. He was really operating off of like the whole Walter Cronkite model of political discourse, right? You had a few large broadcasters and the discourse was shaped by those massive media companies, right? And over the last 20 years since he came up with the idea, there's been this big shift basically driven by, you know, decentralized media, social media, blogs, even. And you see like the rise of things like, you know, Drudge and and other stuff, right? And so he really thought of the Overton window in a lot of ways as a singular thing. Basically, he believed that there are like an upper bound and a lower bound to like what's possible. So on one side, you could have, you know, extreme capitalism, and then you could have communism on the other side. Yep. And there's those poles on the spectrum. And that within that spectrum, there is a space called the Overton window, this window essentially where in that space discourse could occur. And then outside of that space, it was what I think one of the core ideas as it relates to politics is that a politician could only do things that were within that Overton window. If it was out too far outside of that Overton window, there would be too many political consequences for them because the people just weren't ready for it. Yep. They weren't ready to take on these these types of things. So within the landscape, he's thinking of there's like the zeitgeist of sort of acceptability, not just about what you could do politically, but also even what you could talk about in polite company, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think if you imagine, right, that Overton window shifts over time. So if you think about, say, it's 1900 in Chicago, right? And then the idea of welfare, right? It's probably outside the Overton window, government welfare to a large extent. And then you think Chicago in 1980, it's a totally different conversation. That Overton window has shifted. And the opportunity, right, is that Overton window shifts over time, sometimes slowly and sometimes really, really fast. So if you imagine say, the Democratic primaries and the debates. I mean, Andrew Yang was like tarred and feathered for this idea of universal basic income. And fast forward to six weeks ago, and suddenly it's on the table, you know? Like a hundred days after, you know, everybody just roundly disregards the idea as it's totally unacceptable. And then now it's something that seems like the solution. 
maybe we need it. I mean, maybe that's a cornerstone of a, a new deal that comes out of 15% unemployment nationwide, north of 20% in California. Like, so that Overton window, like, and the, but then you look at some, like another example of it, I think that's interesting is, um, is like the legalization of marijuana. That's more of a, I would call that a, a geological shift, right? It's drifted and drifted and drifted. And all these shifts too, though, if you look in, like dig deeper in it, they happen in unequal ways geographically, right? So like I could see it being another 50 years before you could buy, go to a marijuana store in Salt Lake City, for example, or Tuscaloosa. But then I like look out my window of my apartment in Denver and I see four of them. I think it was William Gibson that said like the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. Well, shifts in an Overton window are the same way. Well, that's in fact how you can detect that a fundamental shift will happen. You basically, it's you go from something that is totally, almost universally unacceptable. And this is what people don't understand. The push by people who are pro-marijuana into medical marijuana. Yep. Like what that does is it just expands. Well, it's not purely evil. There could be some benefit to it. It weakens the societal context around us, you know, that resisted people from doing it before. Like, how do these things occur? Uh, what is it that causes them? And there's, I think that there's um, four specific ways that these things change. So four, and I'm not sure if these four are right, but I mean, um, I think a couple of them are pretty well accepted, but a couple of other ones, I'm not sure. So the number one is a, a crisis mover. That's like 9-11, the Patriot Act goes through, we give up all sorts of civil liberties that never would have, we never would have done. You know, certainly the pandemic, same thing. Homeschooling, I think, is one of the biggest things that I think is, I saw this survey the other day that seven out of 10 parents are considering doing some sort of homeschooling instead of or to supplement what they're doing in the normal school. Like that was unimaginable two months ago. Yep. You know? yep. Like that's something, the crisis causes that. So crisis is where these big tidal shifts really occur. Then there's the thing you said, the more geological movements. And I think those, those are like gradual persuasion. Overton, I, I believe he worked for some sort of a think tank, if I remember right. And so this is exactly what think tanks do is they basically, they take a position along this ideological spectrum, you know, again, from communism to cap, pure capitalism, they'll kind of eke out something that's outside of the Overton window and they'll start producing research papers on it. They'll start sort of floating and circulating the idea out there over time. And, you know, certainly you see this with, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, you know, and, uh, Hillary Clinton ran the first time for president, like she was totally against same-sex marriage, you know? So was Obama. But people were working on it for decades, you know, trying to demonstrate that it's it's not bad. In fact, it's good. And then ultimately that it's a right. And, you know, anyway, it was a, it was a slow movement, but think tanks and organizations basically driving that this gradual persuasion. Another example of that that I think is really useful is like the um, when it comes to drugs. So like something is a schedule one drug right? According to the FDA or DEA, that means it has no accepted medical use and is addictive and dangerous, right? Psilocybin is, uh, was schedule one, right? Psilocybin was an MDMA is probably about to become a schedule two drug. When I was thinking about this conversation this morning, I thought of that same example about that, like how using it for to treat PTSD, you know, lots of good evidence that it works in that, you know, but then that, that again, reduces this thing from being like some, you know, rave party drug. The third one is a, a charismatic salesman. It's very rare. Most of the time you see these big ideas that uh, when the Overton window shifts, a lot of times we might give people credit for it, like Andrew Yang might give him credit for 
the monthly checks. UBI, universal basic income. Yeah, so you might give him credit for it. He didn't originate the idea, but he did bring it a little bit into the more popular uh, thinking. But really, if that becomes something that's totally accepted, it will be because of the crisis, not because of uh, leadership or even him as a strong salesman. He was actually a pretty weak salesperson for it, honestly. But a strong salesperson is Gandhi or Martin Luther King or even uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, getting people who, you know, where tax rates were, you know, in the 70s were up in the 70% and then got them cut by 50 points, you know, essentially during his administration, like a huge, and it took a lot of selling to do that, to get the American people to buy into it. The last one is as a provocateur and provocateurs help shift the narrative and make things, get things in people's eyes or in people's heads. They kind of plant seeds, which kind of lower their resistance to things outside of their Overton window. And I thought of Tucker Max and his article on MDMA and therapy. Actually, I was supposed to think of it as, a, as an example of a provocateur. The thing that is really interesting about expanding the Overton window, right? Like if you're going to do it as a charismatic salesman or a provocateur, the cost to the individual of that, most of the time, people that cause these big shifts end up being martyrs, right? And society at the time vilifies them. And then one generation later, they are secular saints in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think you could replace charismatic salesman with heretic. Heretic. Yeah, exactly. But, and then, well, and then you think about it too, it's like, there is that sort of like charismatic, forceful push into it. But I would also argue in a lot of cases, right, especially in Gandhi's and Dr. King's case, if you don't have Malcolm X and basically the Black Panther approach, then I don't think Martin Luther King would have been nearly as successful, right? Because he presented this alternative. You can make an argument that like the coronavirus is Andrew Yang's Malcolm X. Here's the way I would think of Malcolm X and, and MLK though. Malcolm X was further down the spectrum of the, it was further away from the existing Overton window. And it made MLK stuff so much more palatable because, and this, this is what provocateurs do. And I think Malcolm X was a provocateur because what a provocateur does is basically they go, they come out of total left field. And you're like, I mean, you could say like um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, like AOC, her Green New Deal thing. It's like, what are you, like, this is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? But what it does, it's like, well, now it's on the table. And now if you come to half of that, like you feel like you're being, you're being reasonable, you know, because you've expanded the, the Overton window. You planted a seed about what's possible in a way that people never imagined before. Yeah. Well, and the thing is too, and I think what AOC did really well, we'll see if any, any of her ideas survive the political process in the Democratic Party, especially Nancy Pelosi. But to name something is a great power, right? Until you call it something that is memorable and catchy, discourse can't happen around it until then, right? It's a political and, and social idea equivalent of like Archimedes' lever. The name is the place for you to stand. And then you can move lots and lots of things, right? And you pivot off that. It's the lever. And this is sort of the, the origin of this conversation was I was listening to your The Turkey Problem podcast. And you were talking about this idea that leaders and people, and, and I would argue citizens in the ancient Greek sense of the word, have this obligation to say things, right? Even if nobody believes you, or if you're not persuasive, you've started this conversation and allowed people to take it further and further and further. 
And then this is where I think it gets it, the kind of the shift gets really interesting and, and we could expand this Overton window discussion outside of politics. Right. It's way more interesting outside of politics. Agreed. And so it's just like, if you imagine that, like, as a person, if you know something or have an idea that, that you believe in, that you think is powerful and effective, that can make people's lives better, whatever it is, right? It's almost like you have an obligation to say it. If you don't, then you're basically not giving people the opportunity to engage with that idea, to remix it, to play around with it, to see where that ends up going. Well, let's talk for real quick about why that's difficult for people to do first, though, because, you know, as it seems like, well, if you think something is good and it could help people, and then why wouldn't you always say it? Why would it be a struggle that you'd have to fight against yourself or whatever to say it? And, and the reason is because this must be an evolutionary trait among humans. But essentially, there's a certain amount of sort of agreed ideas, conduct, even language that we can use with each other that is just acceptable. So that, And then that is the Overton window, and it shifts over time. And whenever you step outside of that, what you get from people who are still in it is they shame you, they try and persecute you, they try and guilt you to kind of pull you back in to the same center that everyone else is in. And so this is why to say things that are outside of the Overton window, you sound like an insane person or a heretic or something along those lines. So it's like there's a real pressure from everyone around you that you stay within that space. And what I like to do is I like to sort of understand the way things work. I try and pay attention to the way I feel when I start to think about certain ideas or when I entertain certain things. And I, you can almost, I can feel in myself a sense of, well, that seems a little wrong. You know, when I say, why should a man be only be married to one woman? You know, like it feels like that's crossing the line to me. And it is, you know, it is in, in my Overton window, it is crossing the line. But like, and so I can feel that talking about that, really toying with that idea, really exploring that, if that makes more sense, it, like it feels wrong. I would expect other people to be mad at me for saying it. So I know it's outside of the realm. And so if you pay attention to these own thoughts that you might have, and those thoughts might be, you know, maybe you don't need to go to college and it just disappoint your parents, you know, and you could feel like I have to go to college. My parents say I have to go to college. You know, and to choose to not, like, it's almost like you can't go there. You can only accept the possibility of this path. We have technology, right, that allows us, I mean, like, today, SpaceX is, is launching a rocket, yeah, I hope it right? goes well. which is crazy. Me too. But at the same time, I mean, we are apes. We are tribal primates. Not that far in terms of geologic time. If you were like, hey, these berries are actually quite good. They're not poisonous like the tribal chieftain says... Like there's a 50-50 shot. You're getting cast out of that tribe and you're going to wander for a while and you're not going to make it. We take that, the lizard brain approach to it and, and there's great fear in going against people because you might be cast out. And the thing is, everybody listening to this, like it's not so bad to be alone for a while. But the thing is, civilization has provisioned us with such resources, but it has not provisioned us with like the ability to escape those constraints. Right. Exactly. Like we, we want to be part of a group. We want to be affiliated with them. We want to be accepted by them. We are brought back into compliance by shaming. And you see this, you know, if you go just go back to the political thing for just a moment, you see it with um, this is if you really want to control people, okay, you want to control the discourse. You see great attempts by very smart people to attempt to control the discourse, to change the language, to only use certain words, to make the use of certain words you know, to be offensive so that, you know, because again, by a shift, by limiting that discourse, basically you're limiting, you're actually, you're controlling the Overton window. And if you want to control a populace, it's really good if you can sort of narrow that band 
into your preferences, your set of preferences versus the preferences of maybe your political rival. I'm not sure I ever expected you to be like paraphrasing Chomsky in this, but I mean, Chomsky says, right, the smart way, and here's a quote, is like the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum and even encourage the more critical and dissident views. Gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate. I mean, if you imagine like that, like that idea, right? It's like Sun Tzu, right? It's like, if I could pick the battlefield, I don't need to do anything else. And so you have this attempt. And I think the the shift over the last 20 years, which has been really quite interesting, is like media for at least since the post-war era, but even earlier than that, what dominated distribution, right? So like it was expensive to produce content and it was expensive to distribute it. You had to have a fleet of trucks, you had to have printing presses, you had to have cable broadcast lights, like all that stuff, right? And as all of those distribution powers are no longer quasi-monopolies, and that made it easy for people to control the Overton window. And now without those, right, you see this shift where shame and guilt and canceling people and ostracizing people, right, is the new tool to control or attempt to control a populace and and make that Overton window, like you step out of the window, you're going to get your head cut off. You imagine the man in the gray flannel suit, it didn't matter if he had crazy ass ideas because like who was going to, he wasn't going to get an op-ed, but now all your modern day equivalent can like get on Twitter and start tweeting stuff and nobody can control him from distribution, at least not yet. You know, so what do you do if you want to control the discourse? Well, you have to use emotional tactics. Right. So it almost feels like a sort of panic because the range, you know, between any concept, any idea, observable values on the extreme ends of those poles because of the, everyone having access to media are so much higher. Like there's so many more versions of Malcolm X and people, you know, and those kinds of views on every side of every issue, essentially at this point. And so now, like, the Overton window could quickly shift in ways that are very difficult to imagine as a society. Like it go very far where all of a sudden, you know, I mean, you know, huge moves to, you know, anti-capitalistic moves could occur, you know, or you'd almost expect them to occur over the next couple of you know years. You could also see the entire economic order uh, and social order being altered in the U.S. You know, you go from being an, a very open world to a very closed world. I mean, these huge shifts, you can see this happening all of a sudden. It's because I think there's all these samples, sample data points, essentially all at all over the spectrum. And so the culture could shift quickly. And so out of panic, people are just try to shut people down. You know, they just really go after them and try and get them to comply with a, you know, a certain approved yeah. belief system. It's interesting too, because I, I suspect that window is closing, not just because of the the shame factor, but also like as Facebook and Twitter and other things and like the web goes from being relatively open to if you want anyone to hear you, you have to use these huge distribution platforms. Those distribution platforms, as we already see, like 2016, the election, Twitter on an ongoing basis, like the only thing that a huge network is really only other individual actor, if you will, that a network like that is vulnerable to is a state. And so you have this thing where like when no one really took those things seriously, 
you could have a million David Dukes, you could have a million whoever it is, right? And now those things are getting closed or accounts are being suspended, distribution privileges are being revoked. That's an attempt to keep the Overton window more narrow. The Overton window doesn't get managed like that. I think it's like there's gradual persuasion, as I said. There's like there's a crisis. There's like the super salesmen, and then there's provocateurs. And I don't think that like pulling the knobs really to try and cut out stuff really works that well. You know, I'm trying to try and limit that. I would add one to your four, and the fifth is like a um, a shift in media distribution. If you imagine, like say Gutenberg, right, as our starting point. Basically, when he, you know when he combined movable type and allowed people to print things, a whole different world opened up. I mean, it was like the first sort of victim of all of it. Really, was the Church of Rome, right? And suddenly, you have Bibles being printed in vernacular. You have critical texts of monarchs and church, right? right? And so, technology can either centralize power or distribute it, right? And so, the Gutenberg distributed power, right? But it wasn't perfect because it was a big, heavy, physically vulnerable thing, right? And then, you know, you kind of expand. So like the reason why talk radio is generally crazier than broadcast TV is because there's a lot more talk radio, more decentralized, right? And so then there was this shift starting, say, 2006, 2007, maybe even earlier with blogs, but it really accelerated with these social media platforms, right? But then they got so big that it's all kind of coming back and becoming more centralized, or at least there's a vulnerable point that can be choked out. And so the thing that I think is interesting is that, and I can't imagine any single person would take credit for it because it would be a very dangerous thing to take credit for. But you know, the first team of software engineers that build something that is uncensorable that actually gets widespread distribution is a terrifying thing for people that want to keep the Overton window closed, right? And, and you just like look at things like Mastodon, right? Which is just basically like a crypto-based, decentralized, no central point of failure Twitter. And you look at the people that are on it and the different groups, you have like these very hardcore just technologists. And you have basically, you know, the daily stormer crowd and you have all, all these things, right? And so if there's one of those that somehow gets to mainstream adoption, then that will be an enormous shift because it's another sort of push away from this kind of sine wave of like, you know, the ability to distribute ideas becomes decentralized, then it becomes centralized, then it comes back out. Let me see if this summarizes that. It's not necessarily the media, but the media enables more observations of variance from the window. And that social proof of variance from the window, just like we talked about, we have legal weed in marijuana, or sorry, in Colorado. So you can see it, it does work over there, you know? And so then why wouldn't Indiana have it? So in media, the different, whatever the topic, you can find yourself within all kinds of weird, you know, verticals of information, you know, across the spectrum. And so the more observable variants from the window there are, the more likely that window is to shift. Yes, 100%. I mean, I, I think about it like, and the whole time you've been using like the definite article, say the Overton window, I would argue that actually there's effectively a number of Overton windows equal to the number of people in the world plus the number of different situations they could find themselves in over the course of their life, which basically means an infinite multitude of Overton windows. Most of them are pretty similar, 
actually. Yeah, there's definitely like there. It's like it's a big Venn uh, diagram for sure. Humans, when they're together, especially, there's an overlapping, and it's really that overlapping is where the action's at. Your stuff that's outside of it individually when you're with a group is sort of it's kind of irrelevant. You know, it doesn't really move the needle much. But when you, it's the overlapping areas that you have with others that where you get societies to shift. Yeah, and you get friction. I think the metaphor that I think about is like if you imagine the entire world is in a enormous skyscraper and each person has one window out of that skyscraper, right? And like they look at things. Your neighbor's view is not that different from you. And I, I mean neighbor, it doesn't necessarily even have to be geographically, but you know, maybe it's culturally, maybe it's psychographically, whatever it is, right? But it's a big building and it's got a lot of windows. And so you have this this thing where, you know, you, you go up four floors and you go down a long hallway and suddenly like they're not looking at the same landscape that you are. But the way that societies work is that you'll, you know, when in company of others, you know, in polite company, you're going to avoid the topics of religion and politics. You're going to, you're going to avoid these areas where you suspect it, natural disagreement, you know, you, where you worry it might go over the edge normally. Basically, you have to be aware of the Overton window, you have to be, so that you because you can be programmed in a way, whether, you, whether knowingly or not, essentially by what's going on around you. And you also have the ability, and I, you know, this uh, phrase has been ruined now, but you know, to red pill yourself essentially and be able to choose to get out of the matrix. You know, the matrix essentially is an Overton window. It's just an Overton window. It's a way you understand the way reality is, and then you find out wait, there's a whole something, a part of life that I didn't understand was here at all. We, as you were said in the very beginning, that we sort of self-limit our possibilities because of our own sort of, our own Overton window we walk around with all day. Paul Graham, the, the guy who started Y Combinator with a couple other folks, has a really good essay called, I think it's something like, What You Can't Say. And it, I don't think he ever mentions an Overton window in it. But basically, he talks about the idea that in any society, there's basically things you can't say and there's thoughts that you shouldn't think, right? And he says that, that is a, that's really bad, right? Because I think everything that really changes the world for good or worse is some sort of heretical idea. And like, there's a couple different sort of thinking tools that he talks about in it, which I find quite interesting. So the first, and this is sort of the most obvious one, is to just you read history and, and you look at especially things that are as close to that moment describing the things that happened, right? And this is why like diaries and journals are so valuable, right? Because you look at the stuff that people believed even 50 years ago, and then you go further back, and then you ask yourself, okay, what things like that are people going to say about me and my generation 50 years on? The first one is like kind of put it in historical perspective because there's a lot of that I'm sure our kids, kids, kids are going to be like, man, can you believe how how barbaric they were? We raised and bred animals and kept them in our house for our own personal amusement. You know, definitely you can see you know eating meat becoming like something that is just so like awful. Like you know, you're just murdering people. You can imagine that you know that happening once there's a suitable organic replacement um, or. A plant replacement. Yep. And I was just thinking about, you know, the, a couple, maybe a year ago, a picture of my, my daughter with a dog, you know, on social media and going, someday will this be like a blackface, you know? Mm-hmm. 
it's just really hard to imagine those things. But I, but and that's why when you look back and you judge people back in history for what they did, it's just very short sighted of you. It's just incredibly short sighted, you know, because unless you're going to go and put yourself fully in their head and understand their whole way they understood the world around them and their role in it, unless you understand that, you can't really judge, you know, their actions or you know, their behavior. There's this um, subset of the discipline of history that's like intellectual history, right? And I find it super interesting. Most people find it boring as hell. Probably connected to language a lot, I imagine. That is the the generative power of ideas and the vector by which they spread. Yeah. So there's that, right? And it's like, you know, you can read the pop history books that sort of either vilify everyone or deify everyone in the past, right? And that's just not that. It can be pleasurable to read because usually the people that write those are trying to tell a story and then it's, it's entertaining, right? And it allows you to have these narratives that, justify the way you feel today right you know like put yourself in that historical context the key is don't judge people for what they thought seek to understand it and also don't assume that this is some like end of history i mean everyone thinks that they are the most enlightened being to ever live and you are okay congratulations but you won't be give it time you won't be yeah if you take that thought like one step further it's like well wait a second If, if it's all this linear upward progression which it's not then the argument itself disproves the fact you're not going to be there for long, right? The second one, which I think is really interesting, and this is a way to figure out what Overton window you're operating in, is to imagine imagine yourself as as a kid, or to imagine a kid, say like Bella, right? And then think about the scenario that you're contemplating, and think about what what Bella's opinion would be on it, and think about what this other archetypal character would think about the same set of circumstances, right? So this other person, let's just call him Jean-Claude. I don't know why. Jean-Claude, you know, dropped out of his French high school. He joined the French Foreign Legion. He fought in Africa. He got out of that. He opened up a nightclub in Senegal, and he ran a nightclub in Senegal. And then he fell in with a bad crowd. He got into smuggling things. To Marseille. Right? And then he spent a little bit of time in prison and a couple other places. He's had a rich, unsavory life, right? And so you, you take those two worldviews, Bella, Jean-Claude, and then you say, okay, what in these circumstances, what would Bella think about this? And what would what would Jean-Claude think about it? And the point of imagining Bella is, well, it's innocence, sort of, actually, but it's also she has not had nearly the same amount of experience to potentially disprove the things that she has learned in a very structured system. Naivete also. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some of that, right? So you imagine what the two groups of people and the way that Bella would think about it is the Overton window that she's operating in, right? We could say untarnished by any experience or much experience of the world, right? And so one point you made earlier is, you know, why can't a man be married to multiple women, right? And maybe Bella said, well, that, you know, that wouldn't work, you know, I, whatever it is, like her opinion. And then John claudes like, man, I mean. I've been married to three. <laughs> I'm married to three right now. I've been yeah. married to three right now. Or I've seen a warlord who had nine wives and they all seem quite happy. Right. You know, maybe he knows a, an art thief that has multiple families that don't know about each other. And he's like, it could kind of work. Those are two mental strategies to break out of your own. 
right? For me, what I have done, I like that approach, the, using putting yourself in the head of characters who you would presume a certain point of view on because it helps then stretch your own. The way I've typically done is I just look for my like my intuition when something like I knew when I said the multiple wives thing, I'm like, I said it, I, I was trying to give an example that would be like on the edge, but like not too far because people, there are Mormons in America, people know that, but I knew that it's wrong. Like, okay. And so I think one of the things I believe is that you have to look for in those things that you think are wrong. And then as soon as you see them, like you got to hold them up to the light and kind of inspect them from different angles and try and understand them deeper. And you can choose to go, not for me. Yep. But because the initial, the reflexive response is wrong. And so you put it away. What you're doing is you're automatically following some programming that maybe was created by you, but probably not. And is basically is severely controlling the way that you view your life. The goal is to always recognize what your own boundaries are and make sure that they're self-imposed rather than imposed by someone else. And it's, I think it is really important to have boundaries, but it's, they should be based upon, you know, I have decided that this is what I like because of this reason, you know, some personal philosophy of some kind or some, you know, some reasoned out in some way. And it's really important to constantly know where those boundaries are because you're feeling out the walls in the room you know, and then you're kind of making sure that they're still there. You know, you go back later and maybe it's a doorway now, you know, there might be something further you can push to some better boundary that might be better for you. And I think that all the people that historically you admire and all the people that really stand out as remarkable are all people who push the limits on the Overton window. They're on the outside. Now, usually they're like two steps out. So like there's a certain social tolerance you can have for them. You know, they're not super extreme. You don't have to be a charismatic leader, you know, like, you know, an MLK or someone like that in order to really, but I think that if you look at the people that you, even the people that are remarkable that you know of in history are probably people who were standing outside of the over the societal Overton window to do that. They had to basically push the boundaries on their own because they're living in that society. They are naturally going to adopt it first. So reflexively the societal Overton windows and the multitude that exist of those, they've just chosen a different path. They've realized that some of it it doesn't work, that it doesn't make sense, and they push beyond it. Yeah, I mean, there's a Churchill quote. It's just like, uh, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but I mean, most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened, right? Right. And so that's like getting back to your idea of like, something doesn't seem right, or there's just some just slight sort of sensation in the back of your mind that, well, wait a second, like, and most people just run away from it. Right. It's a, like a hot stove, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I, I shouldn't have touched that. I didn't know. But it's not really a hot stove. It's no. just something that's unfamiliar. Yeah. 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 Two last things in terms of the way I think it's good advice for people to have and, you know, within the context of knowing that what Overton windows are a little bit, hopefully from this. The first thing is, you know, don't be a uh, agent of the Overton window. Don't be somebody who is enforcing it on others. Don't jump on the bandwagon. Realize that you are weak. You're weak if you're trying to basically pull, you know, the crab back into the pot. You know what I mean? First and foremost, do not be an agent of the Overton window, shaming and guilting people who express ideas or engage in actions, unless they're actually destructive to individuals, like legitimately destructive. You don't guilt and shame people. So don't be an agent of the Overton window. And then if you can, if you can manage that, then try to be an anti-agent, like try to be an anti-agent of the Overton window and plant seeds of just other ideas out there, you know, in yourself and in others, because it really does. And this is the thing that, you know, back to the original point when we talk about the, uh, the tricky problem podcast was that the obligation to have to speak the truth and to plant seeds in people's heads, because most of the time you're not actually going to change anyone. 
by talking about things, you make change possible or easier for them. You know, you make it easier for them to kind of accept reality once you're willing to say what it is, once you're willing to put ideas out there. So it's really important. It's risky, you know, so don't be an agent. And if you can, you know, strive to be an anti-agent. The last thing is that if you don't think you're operating in an Overton window, you are the person that needs to hear this most because all of us are. You are. And the first step is recognizing that. You got to know the the boundaries that you're operating in. You got to know them. I think it's a great guide. Just pay attention to the way you feel. I know when I'm like here publicly talking about multiple wives, like I know it's not good. I know people wouldn't like it. So I, I can sense that there's a problem with it. You know what I mean? And so you know that that's about, there's a space there that's right about for me and probably in polite discourse that there's a line. And so I think you have to, if you're not pushing around those lines a little bit and feeling them out, then you are definitely operating in some pre-programmed zone that is probably not of your making. Yeah, I mean, that's a great benefit that comedians and before them court jesters brought to things. They are a group of people that are given effectively social license to push and prod at these edges. And maybe, you know, even if it's funny, maybe think about it a little bit further and maybe there's a grain of truth in the laughter. There usually is. All right. Well, thank you, Gary. Thanks for talking about the Overton window with me. And we'll be doing some more of these uh, focused topics where Gary and I try to keep ourselves limited to a single topic point of discussion, which we very rarely are able to do when we're talking in person, but we'll do that for these. Yeah, it's fun. Cool. Thanks, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good one.